0: It all happened on a day, that joyful Christmas day planned in eternity by God the Father and declared by angels as this day which Christ the Saviour would be born, on this day at the perfect fullness of time in the prophesied city of Bethlehem. A promised Saviour was born to a perishing world. Jesus' birth shook an unassuming silent night into a spectacular night So it was that in the manger lay the infant Jesus Christ, God's treasured promise revealed in the glory of Christmas. So as you can tell, we are transitioning into Christmas. Uh, We just got done walking through 2 Corinthians and now we are starting our Christmas series this morning. We're gonna start at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Surprise, surprise, right? But there is a surprise. It's Luke chapter one and not Luke chapter two. We're going to be in Luke chapter one this morning um, as we begin where Luke began. Uh, he starts off with a, a brief dedication to Theophilus and says, You know, I'm writing this so that you may have assurance, confidence in what you have been told. And so while you're turning there, though, um, you know, we are stepping into a time period that's hard for us to understand. Hard for us this far removed from that context to really know the, the feelings and the thinkings and what's happening in those moments. And we're gonna do our best to try to, to narrow in and zoom in to that context this morning. It's a time of anticipation, it's a time of anxiety, not a whole lot different than our time today. You know, it, Just this month alone uh, creates anxiety in the lives of so many. Sometimes good anticipation, sometimes bad anticipation. You know, I got two little girls and they're already um, asking to go see the Christmas lights. And when are we going to drive through that neighborhood? And, um, you know, we put, put up the tree yesterday. And, and I'm. I'll get the lights up eventually, but um, I started yesterday, but it was hot, right? I used the same excuse last year, people, whatever, but it, you know, I'll, I'll get them up, I'll get, I'll, I'll get them plugged in, but they'll, they'll be begging me for it, and we'll, and we'll continue through that anticipation season. It's fun to walk that journey with little ones. For those of us as, as adults, sometimes it's a good anticipation, sometimes it's a not so good anticipation, maybe because of family stress or because this is the first holiday without someone that you love. There can be a lot of things that we're looking forward to in the month of December. a time, very similar to that, that we're stepping into, though it's not just one month. You see, we are zooming into a time frame where there's been about 400 years of silence. And uh, God has, over the course of history, had certain moments where he has spoken, revealed truth to his people. We have it recorded in the scriptures. But we are... Stepping into the end of this silence. This is the first time that God speaks since what we call the Old Testament, what the Jews would call the scriptures. And they've been trusting in what has been said in those scriptures and waiting for a little over 400 years. The last words communicated by, by Malachi, if you look back, you got Matthew's the first gospel. You flip over a page or 30 pages, depending on if you have a study Bible or not. And you see the very end of Malachi chapter four, verses five and six say this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Then silence. For generations, silence. We step into that silence today, and Luke dives into not just that specific context of the Jewish people and their anticipation, but the specific context of two people. And no, not not Mary and Joseph. We'll talk about Mary and Joseph all month long, but this morning we're gonna talk about Zechariah and Elizabeth we step into their lives in this moment, and they have also had a time of anticipation and anxiety, hoping that one day they would be blessed with a child. Even later on in their years, they're still hoping and praying for that. As what we see today, and what I titled the message this morning is a dual delivery, both in the lives of these two individuals, but also a delivery long promised to the Jewish people as a whole. And so hopefully you, you've gotten to, to Luke chapter one by now. We're gonna start in verse five. We're eventually gonna make it all the way through verse 25. And we're gonna notice four things about God and how he acts. And we're gonna make some corresponding applications for us even in our lives today, based off of what we learn about God from this passage. And so let's, let's take a look, let's, let's dive in, let's zoom in on the days of Herod as verse five starts. In the days of Herod king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the command, the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now stop. Many of you have read this chapter before. (laughs) You know what is said next. You know what's gonna happen through the rest of this story. And so my encouragement and challenge for you today is to try to read this with fresh eyes. Try to see it in a new way through the the help of the Holy Spirit in us this morning. You see, because what we dive into here is a time, not just of that anticipation amongst uh, the Jewish people, but we see a faithful couple, a priest and his wife, who is a daughter of Aaron. And... According to the gospel here, they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. You would expect the next verse to say that God had blessed them, that God had been working blessings through their lives and using them for, for powerful things because of their faithfulness. And yet the next words are, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And we're gonna talk more about that expectation and the reality in the lives of those people. But what I want us to to see the first way that God acts is that God acts continually, even in times when he is silent. He was not just silent in terms of direct revelation during this intertestamental time between the old and new covenants, between him speaking through the prophets and then him speaking through his son. But he was silent in, in their lives as well as they were likely praying for delivery of a child. But he's been at work and in action. And so uh, thanks to the, uh, we're we're gonna zoom in even further into the temple, thanks to this beautiful center screen that we have for for our Christmas holiday season and, and a fantastic media team. We're gonna utilize that just a little bit to paint a picture a little bit more clearly for us as we look at what's going on in this story. Verse eight, now while he was serving as a priest before God in his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And we don't know exactly where outside. We can see that there's some outside options. (laughs) You got the holy place up there that's elevated, and you've got some courtyards, the priest's courtyard, the women's courtyard, and the Gentile's courtyard. We don't know, it doesn't say exactly where they are, but what we do know and see is that the people have not forgotten about God. They have not forgotten about God's promise. They are praying in the hopeful anticipation that God is going to move. And generations have died hoping for that. But God's time had not come yet. But we see this day, this specific day, that while the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. That while he's in this holy place, an angel appears, and the predictable first response happens in verse 12. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and his fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. That while in this place, in this inner area of the holy place, not quite the holy of holies, but just outside of it, just outside the curtain, that he sees an angel appear before him. And we'll talk about what the angel says in just a second. What we need to notice first of all is that he is continually acting even when he is silent and we must remember his sovereign control of all these things. Because just even in this passage, without even going through Jewish history of that 400-year time frame and trying to figure out exactly how God was active and when he was active during the Maccabean Revolt and other, uh, other times when, when it seems like he was, he was active amongst his people, we know he's always active. And even before the angel speaks, we see evidence of that. We see evidence in the fact that he has closed the womb of a faithful Jew. He's closed the womb in a time where It would be expected that for someone who is faithful, they would be blessed by God with many children. We see that he has chosen Zechariah by lot to enter into the temple on this day. It wasn't a different priest, it was him. We also see that he's been listening to their prayers. Similar to what he he tells Moses, that he's been hearing the people's prayers. But the time hadn't come yet. But now the time has come. You see, we must remember his sovereign control when we're in times of anxiety and anticipation ourselves. That even when we're not getting a direct revelation, and we're in a time like that right now, ever since this was finished, we're in a time like that. We do not receive direct new revelation from God right now. We have gotten the revelation of God in the time through his son and the apostles and we trust in this revelation. So in a in a similar very similar sense, we are in a time of silence, also anxiously anticipating the move of God. Whereas they during this time were looking towards the Messiah coming to earth, we are looking to the second coming of Jesus. And yet he's still active and working. And right now we can trust in the revelation that we have and know that he is at work. Secondly, we see that God acts in the lives of individuals, but not exclusively. He's gonna act in the lives of these two individuals, but it's not just for them. It's not in a silo. Take a look back at our passage, starting in verse 13. But the angel said to him, "'Do not be afraid, Zechariah, "'for your prayer has been heard, "'and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, "'and you shall call his name John, "'and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. We see that God does step in, but that there's a dual delivery going on here where there is a going to be a delivery by Elizabeth that's going to change their lives forever and answer a prayer that they likely prayed, even though we don't have a, an actual record of their prayers for a child. It's also a delivery for the Jewish people and ultimately us as well. And so God acts in the lives of individuals, but not exclusively. And what we must remember is that our lives are intertwined with all of creation. It's so tempting for us to look at our own lives in a bubble and think about just what's happening to us and what that means for us and not realizing the fact that our lives are actually intertwined with everybody else's lives and really all of creation. Take a look at what Romans 8 says, "'For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That in a sense, all of creation, for one, has been impacted by sin, But all creation is held together by the same sovereign God, is worked together by the same sovereign God. And while on one hand, we'll very readily and easily say, well, yeah, he's sovereign over all things, but then we'll want to only analyze what happens in our lives as just being us. And yet we see in this very story that that's not true. That God had closed the womb of Elizabeth for a purpose. And in that day, there was a very real perspective in which someone would look at the family and how many children someone was blessed with and make a direct correlation to their faithfulness or what they've done. That somehow, if they did good, God would give them more kids. It was a very real expectation and perspective in that day. It came from a general perspective that people who do good, get good. People who do bad, get bad. We see that from Job's friends. If, you, if, you, if you've ever read the book of Job, that was their perspective. Job must have done something wrong to deserve what happened. We also even see it amongst the disciples. In John chapter nine, we see this. It says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That their first thought was, man blind must have sinned. In a strange way, somehow even potentially retroactively, because it didn't say he was struck with blindness at the age of four because he had hit his sister. It says he was born blind and yet they asked, was this man's sins or his parents' sins to blame? Because bad thing, bad person. But that's not even what Jesus says. Jesus said, it wasn't that his parents had sinned, it wasn't that he had sinned, it's that this has happened in God's sovereign will so that he may be glorified by this healing that is about to happen. You see, we, we, we read verses like Romans 8:28 that says, "For we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." And then we take stuff like that and we say, "Well, good, this bad thing happened, this good result must be the reason for that bad thing happening. There's the, the good that comes out of it. But we don't know. We have no idea but we're obsessed with asking this question of why and yet we see in multiple examples in scripture that there is no direct correlation between someone being faithful and getting blessed in fact some of the most faithful people in scripture met really unpleasant ends for their faith but we're tempted to look in our lives and say, well, this this happened, so this must be the reason. I would encourage you to to fight the temptation to ask why to begin with. We may never know. We may think that the answer for why is is one thing, and maybe it's not even the answer at all. We're not sovereign like God is, and he's not normally going to tell us. It may be that you're going through something right now for the benefit, obviously for the ultimate glory of God, but for the benefit of somebody else. And you may never know. But we must remember that our lives are intertwined with all of creation. And when he says he's working all things out for good, he is in fact working all things out for good, but it's good as he defines it. And it's, a flawed perspective in our minds to try to look at the good in our lives and try to figure out what it connects to and how the bad leads to good. Because him and his sovereignty is weaving it all together. So we can't trust in in always understanding the why, but we can trust in something else. We see next in our passage that God acts through promise and fulfillment. Look at verse 16 and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Let's read Malachi chapter four again. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. You see, when the angel's speaking these words to Zechariah, he absolutely has in mind the words of Malachi. That while this is, in a way, I guess, a a re-up on that promise, it's also the fulfillment of this promise that he will be sending someone in the spirit of Elijah It's an incredible thing that God chooses to act through promise and fulfillment. I think there's probably multiple reasons for it, but he doesn't have to do that. (laughs) Think about it for a second. God does not have to tell us what he's gonna do. He doesn't have to call his shot before he does it. And yet he chooses over and over again in this book to prophecy and fulfill, to promise and fulfill. For me, two reasons stand out. One, I think it's an incredible authentication of this book. You see, we we talked before about about miracles and how miracles are, um, their primary purpose is to authenticate a message from a messenger. The apostles did miracles to show and prove that the message they were carrying was the true message of God because you would expect a supernatural signature on work from a supernatural God. In a similar sense, all the prophecy and promises in this book that are then fulfilled, they authenticate this message. God doesn't have to warn us and, and, and say, that's about to happen, but he chooses to. And I think it acts as an authentication here. I think it also acts as a way of us gaining in trust in the Lord ourselves. Because we can look back through page after page after page of God saying he's gonna do something and then doing it promising something and then fulfilling it. You see, the application here of God acting through promise and fulfillment is that we must remember that God will do everything he says he will do. He will do everything he says he will do. He's been promising deliverance for the Jewish people since the very beginning, for humanity in general. Since he, he prophesied of, of the crushing of the head of the serpent as they left the Garden of Eden to, the, to the, the very similar prophecy towards Abraham as Zechariah in which the offspring are going to be a blessing to people and the, and the, the deliverance that will come out as a result. See, so he's been promising and promising and promising and we've seen him fulfill his promises. But we have to be so careful. As we remember that God will do everything he says he will do, we must be correct about what he says he will do. I've seen over and over and over through the years of people who have had a crisis of faith because God didn't do something they were trusting him to do. That they were were following Christ, living for him, but somehow along the way, they had begun to trust in a promise that was never made. That happens a lot of different ways. Happens with a misuse of scripture. Just because something is written on a piece of wood at Hobby Lobby does not mean it's a promise from God. I have mixed emotions every time I walk through that place. Just because someone wrote it on social media does not mean it's a promise from God. Just because someone named it and claimed it does not mean that they get to assign that as a promise from God. God has not promised us good health. God has not promised us worldly success and wealth. God has not promised us that we're not going to experience pain. It would have been wrong for Zechariah and Elizabeth to be trusting God to give them a child because of some, promise he never made now he had a work in store for their lives that we that we see played out but they should not and hopefully were not trusting that that was a promise for them we are not promised children ourselves we're not promised that our children will outlive us we're not promised to get to spend the next christmas with the people in this room You see, the reason it causes a crisis of faith is because when you build up your faith and trust on a flawed promise that was never truly a promise of God, and then he predictably does not carry out and fulfill a promise he never made, that foundation crumbles. So how do we know what God's promised us? There's a book. You wanna know what God's promised for your life that he will fulfill? Read this. You wanna know what God's will for your life is? Read this. Read it well. Learn to renew your mind with this truth so that you can think so biblically. That as you walk through this world, you can not only be able to pull this up on your device or, or or pull it out of your pocket, but you can actually notice and see and test and approve what God's will is in this world because you've renewed your mind with this truth. Because you're going to hear lie after lie after lie from religious teachers and others saying God is promising this, God will do this. If it's not in here and understood in context, actually applying to you and me, it is not a promise from God and we should not be trusting in it. But we can and should remember that God will do everything he says he will do. The last part of God's activity in this passage, God acts to deliver. He acts to deliver. Let's look back at our passage. We'll pick up where we left off. Let's look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which would be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife, Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among the people." God acts to deliver, and we see two responses to this activity. We see doubt and denial in Zechariah, and we see faith in Elizabeth. And we also either flourish in faith or suffer in denial. Zechariah doubted the word of God. And this, like I said earlier, in a similar way to Abraham, where they, a prophecy was given to that you're going to have a child in old age. And Abraham and Zechariah both said the same essential question, but how will I know this is true? And before we start to judge Zechariah too harshly and think, well, if I was in the temple burning incense and an angel appeared before me, I would have believed him. You don't know that for sure. He did get this revelation. He did have this angelic meeting, and yet he doubted. And he saw immediate suffering from this denial and doubt. He was struck mute. He couldn't speak. And this is before you had like actual sign languages that people could communicate with. This was before we had iPhones where you could just type it in and make it say it for you and all that. I mean, he didn't have the technology. This was probably painful. And it was for at least nine months because he didn't get to speak again until the delivery. And he spoke and said, this baby will be named John. It's a very worthwhile time for him, it appears, and in the progress of his faith. And now, we don't know exactly how that, that exchange happened. We don't know if, if Gabriel took a deep sigh. <sighs> I'm Gabriel. We don't know if it was in a Russell Howard voice, I am Gabriel. I don't know, I can't even boom. I, I, even if I tried to boom into this microphone, I can't do it like he can. You can hear him coming all the way through the faith building no matter which corner he's in. <laughs> he's not here right now, Shh. But before we judge him in his denial, we need to understand that many deny this proclamation of delivery. Priests deny Jesus to him for his face. Even one of the disciples has a nickname because of an exchange he has with Jesus, doubting Thomas. He said, I'm not gonna believe until I see. And Jesus in his mercy and grace did not just like kill him on the spot. He showed him, look, I'm here. And then he said this to him. Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Because many will deny. Many will die in their denial and suffer ultimately in a real place called hell. Others like Elizabeth will take it in and respond in faith flourish in that faith and have a, she had amazing moments with Mary and, uh, and leading up to the birth of John and after that you, you can read in that gospel of Luke, if you'd like to continue reading, but we either flourish in faith or suffer in denial because while there is no direct correlation between you living faithfully and being blessed, there is a direct correlation between you and I being sinful and the wrath of God. This delivery is a delivery from something. This delivery of the Messiah that they were trusting and to deliver them from temporary bondage was so much more than they even understood. It was a, it was a delivery from eternal bondage, not just from the Roman empire, but from sin and death. And you and I have to respond to this same delivery. And we either respond in denial, either denying it outright or living in denial, or we respond in faith, knowing that the only way we get delivered from paying the punishment for our sins that we deserve by being separated from God for eternity is by trusting in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, proving that he had conquered sin and death. And we can flourish in that faith if we do repent and believe. I don't know where you came into this room. I don't know if you're in denial or if you're in faith. My hope and prayer is that you don't leave this place still in denial. And if you'd like to talk to somebody about doing that, I'll be... Available right down front. We'll have other people in this room and and just out in the lobby that would love to talk with you about that. There's even a number on the screen that you can text that will link you up with somebody to talk with about that. You can flourish in faith too. But for those in the room who are in faith, who would count themselves to be among the children of God, my encouragement and challenge to you is to walk in the spirit of John. John the Baptist who went out proclaiming the message of delivery, going to his death even though he was faithful. But don't let this month end without sharing the gospel with somebody. If you are a carrier of the gospel and you believe what we just looked at and what we have talked about this morning, then you know what's on the line for everybody in this city. You know what's on the line for everyone living in denial. And while you and I can't save a single person and we are not told to, we are told to carry the message of the gospel to this world, to go and make disciples. And if we're gonna think biblically, we must therefore then live missionally with a heart for those people. Don't let this month go by without sharing the hope that you possess. If you are a believer in Christ, you have the information you need to start and have that conversation. Let's be carriers of hope, not in the, in the deliverance of gifts, but in the deliverance of sinners.